as we um, begin to, I, we kind of have touched on discipline number three, ministry, but to, but this morning that is really going to be our focus. And I'm just really excited about being able to look at the example of the Apostle Paul and see what God has to teach us this morning. So let's begin by turning over your notebooks and we're going to review our purpose and our disciplines. When something becomes very familiar to us and we hear it again and again and again, I think it's really easy to tune out when it's time to listen to it again, right? And so because these are so familiar to us, I really want to encourage you this morning um, that as we go over the disciplines that you allow them to be great reminders of where we need to set our focus and where we need to set our hearts. So let's go over the Wellspring purpose. It's to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live out the gospel, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Have you ever noticed how overwhelmingly simple our purpose is? Shepherd our hearts to Jesus, live out the gospel, and the church is strengthened. The church is strengthened by our faithfulness on a very basic level. And I am so encouraged as I have talked with many of you that so many of you are taking this purpose seriously. Discipline one is becoming a pattern in many of your lives. And that pattern is growing into a desire. And that desire into a hunger and a love for prayerfully shepherding your hearts toward God. Through the word of God. And in particular, the gospel. But when I realized how overwhelmingly simple our purpose is, again, shepherd our hearts, live out the gospel, the church is strengthened. I can't help but wonder why we can so struggle with it like we do. It's so straightforward, right? So why do we so easily get off track? I want to suggest to you this morning that perhaps in part our struggles with fulfilling the purpose of wellspring in our lives may boil down to unbelief. Now I think we all believe that the more proof that we will all be more fruitful when we do shepherd our hearts well. But perhaps we may fail to believe that there really is no good thing in us apart from Christ. We may may not really believe that the church is weakened by poor shepherding of our hearts. We may not really believe that the strength of the church really does depend on us, on you, on me. It might be easy to believe that we can simply fade into the woodwork and not really get too close to anybody and believe that that can't hurt anyone. But that is exactly what will weaken the body. Because what is that saying? It's saying that the gospel work of Jesus Christ 
in my life or in your life isn't big enough or powerful enough or valuable enough to impact anyone else. Ladies, that's why we must preach the gospel to ourselves. Rehearsing of the gospel is the only thing that transforms our unbelief. It builds up our lack of confidence in the Lord and it tears down any false confidence that we might have in ourselves. And it instills in us a delight in our Savior and a desire to display Him so that He builds up His body through us. So discipline number two, ministering to those in our households, is possible only when we do shepherd our hearts. When we do that, we can't help but better love and serve and see God's grace in our homes. And today as we focus specifically on discipline number three, our ministry, it is again vital that we keep the gospel at the very center of our hearts. If we don't, we will either fall into a false sense of self-confidence or we will become paralyzed by our own inadequacy. Ladies, our call is high. There's no doubt about that. I hope that you sense that, how high our calling is. But we don't need to shrink back from that calling or from God's high standards. In order for this teaching to produce fruit in our lives, we need to place our confidence in the power of the gospel to produce that fruit in us. So the question that we first need to ask this morning is what is ministry? To answer that, I think it would probably be good to ask what isn't ministry? Is there any area in our lives that is not ministry in which we don't need to be concerned with our hearts and the gospel's influence? I don't think so. Ministry means being intentional about living out the gospel in everything, every minute of our day, and in every sphere of our lives. Now that may include a particular ministry within the church or another ministry. It may include a particular person who really needs us to invest in them with the love of Christ in the gospel. But what is easy, I think, for us to miss are the ministry opportunities that exist in that person at work. Maybe that makes our life really difficult. Or in seeking another's forgiveness. Or in going to someone else and helping them see their sin. Or in caring for the hearts and needs of those in our own family or our own home. So what is ministry? If we are a follower of Jesus Christ, our whole life is ministry. So with that in mind, let's look at the example of Paul. So would you take out your outline and then open up your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 1. 
What I'd like to do is to read the entire chapter and then we're going to focus on verses 5 through 10. Now, as we look into the first couple of chapters, one thing that I think is so important as we read this passage is to know that Paul was with the Thessalonian church at the most three months and at minimum three weeks. Now, how do we know that? It mentions in Acts Acts 17 that Paul was with them on three Sabbaths. So we could take that as meaning that he was with them for three weeks. But it's more likely that he was with them just a little bit longer than that. He may have mentioned the, the being with them on three Sabbaths because he was reasoning with them for three Sabbaths while he was with them. But we do know he was with them a very short time. So keep that in mind. A church existed in Thessalonica because a man was preaching the gospel to them for less than three months. Let that sink in. See God's faithfulness in using Paul in preaching to the Thessalonians. And he's writing back to them now. Uh, Let's start in verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, In the presence of our God and Father, knowing brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Then Paul offers an explanation of what chosen ones look like and what a ministry in the gospel looks like to chosen ones. He said, "For for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now I want to focus in on verses 5 through 10. And as I do, I want to look at five ministry truths that will help us better understand discipline number three, what ministry is all about. So you have those in your outline. Let's start with number one. Ministry has only one message, the gospel. If we're going to talk about ministry, discipline number three, it's important to understand that ministry has one message, 
and it's the gospel. That's what Paul's saying here. He says in verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. See, Paul is affirming that the gospel did come to them. Now we're going to come back to verse 5 in a little bit. But first, I want to look at some other scriptures that will help us better understand the way Paul viewed the gospel ministry. So I want you to go to Romans chapter 1. If we're going to say that ministry has only one message and it's the gospel, we need to make sure that we understand how broadly Paul uses the gospel. So look at Romans 1 verse 11. Paul says, I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Now it's clear in Paul's mind that he's writing to Christians. He's saying, I want to be, encur- I want to be encouraged by your faith in Jesus Christ. And I want you to be encouraged by my faith in Jesus Christ. I can't wait. I'm eager to come to you. I long to see you. Now, drop down to verse 15. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul wants to preach the gospel to who? To Christians, right. Now, don't we oftentimes think of the gospel as something that we preach to unbelievers? Paul's thinking here reveals that we often have a narrow view of the gospel. It's true, we do preach the gospel with the, to unbelievers with the hope that, that they will believe. Obviously, we don't want to forget that. We don't want to take that out. But that is not the only use for the gospel. That kind of thinking is missing something very important, that the gospel still must be preached to those who are, are already in the faith. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So his whole, his whole purpose, his whole point is to preach, to those, preach the gospel to those who believe. Okay, that's in chapter 1 of Romans. Now I want you to turn to the very end of his letter. Turn to Romans 16. He begins this benediction by greeting Christians who are in the churches. He greets Phoebe, who is a servant in the church, and Priscilla and Aquila, his fellow workers in Christ Jesus, Mary, who has worked hard for them. He mentions his fellow prisoners, and he goes on listing many by name. Again, he's talking to Christians in the churches. Now let's read verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. 
Now just remember that phrase, my gospel. We're going to come back to that when we go back to 1 Thessalonians. But here, Paul wants to establish these Christians according to the gospel. Paul's thinking was, I'm going to come and I'm going to preach the gospel to those who already believe. And then at the end of the letter, he said, I want you to be established and strengthened according to my gospel. So in the first chapter, it's about the gospel. That's his concern. And in the last chapter, he's concerned about the gospel. Now, what do you think is in between? Do you think it's going to be something other than the gospel? No, in between is some of the richest gospel theology that you'll find anywhere in the Word. We need to understand how inseparable theology and gospel are. How important it is that our doctrine is in accordance with the gospel. It's all about the gospel. That's the way Paul saw it. You preach the gospel, you begin with the gospel, you move forward with the gospel. It's all about the gospel. It's where all theology and doctrine are rooted. They're inseparable. So with that in mind, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. Paul is emphasizing here that the gospel came to them. Okay, His main thought is he reflects back on his ministry with them is that the gospel engaged them. It's all over this letter to them. So let's look at verse 2 of chapter 2. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Now look at verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Now look down at verses 8 and 9. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. So again, Paul's leading concern is he thinks back on his time with them was that it had to be about the gospel. And what do we need to remember as we step into one another's lives in the church and beyond the church is that this must be our leading concern as well. When we talk about discipline number three, we're talking about ministry concerning the gospel with one another. We're bringing the gospel into everything. We want to help one another engage with the fullness of the gospel. Think of all that we would miss if we stepped into one another's lives and gave the impression that the gospel was simply something that saved us long ago. Something in the past. Okay, We can't think that way. We must remember that the gospel has everything to do with right now. 
So if we're saying that ministry is all about the gospel, then what must we know? You can say it. We must know the gospel, right? If we're bringing the gospel into everything, if it's how we were saved, and if we want to help each other to understand how to use the gospel every day in our battle with sin, in, um, in our thought life, in our relationships, in our service, in everything, then we need to know it. Because scripture tells us that the gospel is the power of God. It tells us what the gospel accomplishes in us, our union with Christ, and that we can now live in a manner worthy of our calling. So in your homework, as Sarah mentioned um, this week, you um, are going to be writing out the gospel As you do, and we've given you some handouts to help you do that, but as you do, you want to make sure that as you write it, that you include the truth about God, right? That's where we have to start, about who he is, about his character, the truth about sin, what it is, its effect and its consequences, the truth about Jesus, who he is and what he's done, And the result, the effects, and the benefit for those who repent and believe in this good news. Forgiveness and new life. As we all continue to grow in our understanding of the gospel's power and purposes, I think we'll be more willing to share it with others, to both unbelievers and to those who believe. So if you need a little bit of help in understanding the gospel and maybe in learning better how to communicate it to someone, ask someone for some help. Talk to your discussion group leader. Okay? We must not be content until we know the gospel, until we understand it, until we are able to communicate it. Because this is not just information that we must know. This is about knowing Christ. It needs to saturate us because this is about our Savior. This is what belongs at the center of our our relationships, just as it was for Paul. We need to learn how to come into our relationships thinking you're my sister in Christ or, if appropriate, my brother in Christ. And I want to encourage you with the gospel. And I want you to encourage me with the gospel. Now is that what we always think when we go to someone who's struggling? Is that what we always want to hear from someone else when we're struggling? Do we ask others to preach the gospel to us? Because when we are struggling... What we need to hear more than anything else is to be reminded of the great truths of the gospel and the power of the gospel. We need to believe that humbly going together to the gospel will give us eyes to see God's grace and to be transformed by his grace in that area where we're struggling. 
That's what it means to be ministry-minded with one another. Now, that may take some change in our thinking. Okay, it takes practice. Our habit when we're struggling may not be to look to the gospel. In fact, we may even find some kind of sinful pleasure in wallowing in our struggle, in feeling offended or hurt, or even indignant as we saw when we looked at Martha. Or we might struggle with self-righteousness. And so we need to walk carefully and humbly with one another as we learn to be gospel-centered. We must continue, obviously, to be compassionate and sympathetic, concerned with one another, mourning with those who mourn, and in the midst of loving one another, we bring the gospel to one another. Because that is where our hope lies. It's where we are drawn back to the lover of our souls. Now there's one more thing that I want us to look at before we move on. Notice what Paul said in verse 5 of chapter 1. He said, for our gospel. Okay, remember back when we looked at Romans? He said, my gospel. So I just want to mention that here he says our gospel because it's Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy who are writing. He says it's our gospel. Now, how can Paul say that? It's his gospel because it was given to him and it has produced fruit in him. And Paul has taken ownership of it. It's his. Do you see what a bold statement that is for Paul to make? Now that's something I think that's worth pondering. What would change if we thought of the gospel as our gospel? We would take ownership of it, wouldn't we? Well, we need to. Because it is our gospel if we, like Paul, are in So, ministry has only one message, and it's the gospel. Now let's look at the second truth. Ministry requires an uncommon messenger. Now as important as the gospel message is, that's not Paul's leading concern in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2. The interesting thing is that here... He is more concerned to talk not about the content of the message, but about the carrier of the message. His concern is to remind them of the kind of messengers who brought the gospel to them. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians 1.5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. How did the gospel come? It did come in word. But not in word only. It came in power. And it came in the Holy Spirit. And it came with full conviction. And how do we know that the gospel came this way? What does Paul point to by way of evidence? Let's finish reading verse 5. 
Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Just as is a word that shows comparison. It's almost like an equal sign. Paul is saying that the evidence that the gospel came in in this way is the kind of messengers he and his co-laborers were. Paul is saying that they came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction when they brought the gospel. Paul is focusing them beyond the content of the gospel message. When he thinks back on his gospel ministry with them, he remembers three things about it. He remembers that he came to them and he remembers that in his interaction with them, there was the power of God among them. His coming was in the Holy Spirit. He remembered that when he came with them, they had confidence. They had full conviction about what they were doing as gospel messengers. Okay, That's what he's describing. Paul's point in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2 is really about describing the gospel messenger. And that's what we're going to talk about throughout the rest of our lesson this morning. The kind of messenger we are is extremely important. This shows us that we have got to be the right kind of person in ministry. An uncommon messenger who comes with full conviction about the power and hope of the gospel in every circumstance. And isn't that the kind of women we want to be? But I'll be honest, when I hear three descriptive phrases like this, I realize that I don't always think this way. But when Paul thinks back on his ministry with the Thessalonians, what he seems to remember is the power that accompanied his ministry. I don't always remember, as I bring the gospel into my relationships, to pray, God, I need your power and the Holy Spirit, and I need full conviction of the gospel's sufficiency in everything. But what if I did pray that way? What if you prayed that way? What if that was the focal point of our lives as we bring the gospel to our families, to our friends, to those in the church and those beyond the church? What if we were praying, God, I need your power today in this conversation In this response. And I need your spirit and full, with full conviction. Can you think about the difference that that might make? We would be women dependent not on our own strength, but on the strength of him, on his strength in us. So, how do we become that kind of woman. Does anything pop into your mind? You ought to automatically be thinking of discipline number one, right? We shepherd our hearts 
to the word of God to meet with him. And pray, God, please, I need your power and I need your spirit and I need full conviction regarding the sufficiency of the gospel. And what does that power look like? Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 7. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Okay, did that surprise you a little bit? Here's the Apostle Paul, a man of power, a man with the Holy Spirit, with full conviction, and he says, I was like a nursing mother among you. I was protecting you with my gentleness. Look at verse 8. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Is that what we typically think of when we think of power, gentle, like a nursing mother, tender care, affection? If not, we need to change our thinking. Because that not only describes Paul, that describes Jesus, the most powerful man and the gentlest man, the meekest man on the earth. And so this is how we must desire God's power and his spirit and full conviction about the abundant sufficiency of the gospel to be displayed in our relationships. What will it take in your life, in my life, to be this kind of uncommon messenger to the people in our lives? Are you thinking about it again? Discipline number one. We shepherd our hearts to the word of God to get to the gospel to get to Jesus, pleading with God for his power, asking for the Holy Spirit to produce his fruit in our lives, we must plead for greater conviction about the gospel's power to transform, excuse me, to transform lives through our ministry. Let me say that again because I don't want you to miss it. We must plead for greater conviction about the gospel's power to transform lives through our ministry. Because ministry requires an uncommon messenger. And that brings us to number three. (coughs) Excuse me. Ministry involves imitation. Okay, let's continue on in verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now, let's think about what he's saying. Okay, listen to how Paul to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11:1. 1. He said, "Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ." 
Paul's pattern of life was so in alignment with Christ's pattern of life that he could say, if you imitate me, you will imitate Christ. As believers, that's what we all should strive to be. Our goal is to make sure that the gospel comes in words, absolutely, but our goal also needs to be that we would be imitatable women. We need to be praying for God to make us women that can actually be imitated by others. Ladies, people are watching. What the gospel enables us to do as we align our lives with Christ is to live a life that is worth imitating. Wow. Think about that. Our desire and our prayer and our plan should be that we would so align our lives with Christ that others may imitate our life as we imitate Christ. God's design in gospel ministry is that we give one another not just the gospel, but that we give one another an example to follow. So, what does that mean? Let's first talk about what it doesn't mean. Okay, it doesn't mean that we try to put on some kind of air that tries to make others think that we've got it all together. Okay, we already know no one does, right? So let's not pretend to be something that we're not. Okay, and it doesn't mean um, that we try and drum up our own works-based righteousness. Okay, we know that's not what the gospel is all about. Rather, a godly woman, an imitatable woman, is a woman living a life of repentance. Okay, when we blow it, when we sin, we go to our parents. We go to our children, our roommates, our husbands, whoever we've offended, whoever we've sinned against, and we seek their forgiveness. As you think about that, maybe think about some of the people that you work with. Talk about rocking their world, right? The world doesn't know what to do with repentance. Others will clearly see that there is something different in us as we seek their forgiveness. Part of shepherding our hearts is preaching the gospel to our sinful hearts. Going to the cross with our sin and shepherding it with the truth of the gospel. That Jesus paid for that sin. He died for it. And that we are no longer a slave to it. And that he has provided for us a way to be obedient. We must plead with God to make us a reflection of Christ. Paul understood that. In 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul describes himself as the foremost of sinners. And yet... He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
It's obvious that he knew that following Christ involved preaching the gospel to his own sinful heart. And so must we. When we do, it brings a humble joy as we rest in the, com- in the completed work of the cross. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. That kind of Galatians 2.20 living is worth imitating. Now let's look again at verse 6 and see specifically at how they imitated Paul. He said, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. See, reading that reminds me that we have an enemy who is hostile toward God and oftentimes hostile toward us because of our loyalty to him. But in God's design, by his plan, the gospel goes forward. And oftentimes many receive the gospel in the midst of tribulation and affliction. Paul experienced that, and he says specifically in verse 6 that you became imitators of us, having received the word in much tribulation. But look at what comes right after that. I don't know about you, but I think I'd expect to see a period right there. But the verse doesn't end that way. How does it end? He says, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't always think that tribulation and affliction and joy go together, do we? In fact, we're often, I know I am, often tempted to think that tribulation and affliction will diminish our joy. But this verse tells us that with tribulation comes the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now let me read to you John 15. This is what Jesus said to his disciples on the night before he went to the cross. He tells us that there is only one true joy, and it's his joy. In verse 11, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Do you want to have the fullness of joy? The only way to have joy is if it's his joy in us. Joy is rooted in Christ and with the Holy Spirit. Now listen to John 16, verse 20. This is the same night before Jesus goes to the cross. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. 
Therefore you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. No one will take your joy away from you. Why? Because it's his joy. In John 17, 3, Jesus prays to the Father, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the the world, so that they may have my joy made full in them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He's saying they live in a world filled with evil. So they need to have my joy made full in them. So what Paul is telling us in 1 Thessalonians is that God has a joy for us. There is a joy that comes from Jesus, a joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. And tribulation can't touch it. In fact, God's joy can be made full in the midst of tribulation in us. And it is in that sense that they imitated Paul. The word came to them, and there was trouble everywhere. And yet, they were joyful. We can have that kind of joy. We must plead with God to make us imitators of Christ so that we can become this kind of example to others. So that when trouble comes into our lives, and we know it will, we have joy and others can imitate that. He's telling us that even in the midst of tribulation, Jesus has given us a joyful life that is centered on his word. I love that about God's word. It goes beyond our circumstances. That when everything is hard, you've ever been in a season like that where it seems that everything is hard, we still can have joy. How can that be? Because our focus isn't on our circumstances, but it's on God and who he is in the midst of our circumstances. James 1 tells us to consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. To consider means to think carefully about something, especially with regard to how we will take action. When we are in a trial, we are to think carefully about it in such a way that it will guide our actions. That means we choose to be joyful in the midst of it, knowing what God will do through the trials. In other words, joy in the midst of hard times in many ways is a discipline that we need to cultivate. When we choose to focus on God and His grace, and his mercy, he gives us a joy that goes far beyond our circumstances. What an amazing gift that is from him. I hope you'll take some time and you'll thank him 
for that gift and then be reminded of it the next time you go through a trial. So let's take about a five-minute break um, and then we'll come back and finish up our lesson. So we saw that ministry has only one message and it's the gospel. That ministry requires an uncommon messenger and that ministry involves imitation. And now let's look at number four. Ministry must produce not only exemplary lives, but effective lives. So let's look again at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 6 and 7. Excuse me. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. <clears throat> Excuse me. The life that is imitatable is also an effective life. The Thessalonians became imitators for a reason. So that at the beginning of verse 7 indicates a purpose. You became imitators so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. In verses 6 and 7 there is a chain reaction taking place in gospel ministry. And that chain reaction is one person imitating another. And then someone is imitating them. Christ is imitated by Paul and his co-laborers. And then they become men that the Thessalonians imitate. And now they are examples all over Macedonia. Excuse me, I said that right. They became imitators. They became examples. let me, let me start that chain reaction over again. I'm sorry. Okay, Christ is imitated by Paul and his co-laborers. Okay, now they are examples all over. They become men who the Thessalonians imitate. That's the one I forgot to get in there. And now they are examples all over Macedonia and Achaia. Okay, that's the chain reaction. So it's Christ to Paul, Paul to the Thessalonians, and the Thessalonians to anyone else in the region who hears about their faith. And that's not only for them. This is how we need to be thinking. This is what we need to set our sights on in gospel ministry. See, if we step into someone's life simply for the purpose of being being an example for them to follow, Again, we are thinking too narrowly. When we step into, say, a discipleship relationship, we want to go into that relationship thinking that as we are examples to them, we want to be be preparing them to be examples to others. Okay? So Paul then offers an explanation in verse 8 of this imitation chain reaction that has been taking place. It's an explanation of what we mean by effective lives. 
for the word of God has sounded forth from you. That's how the Thessalonians were an example. Not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. Now when it says that the word sounded forth from you, that phrase, sounded forth, is like a trumpet blast. It means a distinct sounding forth to call an army to attention or to fight. And notice how far that biblical trumpet blast went. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but Paul says in every place your faith has gone forth. And the key statement about how effective all of this was is found in verse 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. Now who's saying this? The great preacher, Paul. He had no need to say anything. God's word and their faith in Christ was proclaimed so effectively and their lives were so thoroughly transformed as believers, it spoke so loudly that there was no need for Paul to add anything to it. Wow. That's effective, isn't it? So, we've said that living a life of ministry means the gospel is our message. It's what we are always looking to share with others. Unbelievers and believers. And it means being an uncommon messenger with that gospel, displaying God's power and spirit and conviction through gentleness. And it means being an example to others, living lives of repentance and having joy in the midst of trials. And then we need to desire that people actually imitate our example. We want to be so effective that ministry is multiplied, that ministry continues on through others. See, we need to pray that God would raise up others who would speak more broadly than we do. Think about the next generation. Think about your little ones. I love to look around on Sunday morning and see all of the little ones and pray and ask God that he would work in them so that they would go out And they would speak more broadly even than we do. Wow, what a ministry call on our lives because we're responsible to teach that generation, right? We need to look at this as something to aim for, to pray for, to hope for by God's grace. This is what the gospel has the power to do. Therefore, we must pray for God to use us in this way. That the gospel would be proclaimed 
and lived out with a life that is imitatable for the people around us so that others would become imitators of us as we imitate Christ and then that they would become examples to others. That's the kind of thinking and praying and ministering we should aim for. And then number five, ministry labors for nothing less than repentance. We see that in verses 9 and 10. In verse 9, Paul is explaining verse 8. Okay, verse 8 ended with, We have no need to say anything. Now, why is that? For they themselves report to us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So the Macedonians and the Achaeans were reporting two things. First of all, they were reporting about Paul and his ministry team and the reception that they had with the Thessalonians. And then second, they were reporting about how the Thessalonians turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. So let's look at the first one, the kind of reception that Paul had among the Thessalonians. Now the word reception is the word for an entrance. Paul had a wide open entrance, a welcome path right into their lives. That's the report that was going out. Paul's ministry was well received. Paul here is emphasizing again how important the messenger is as the message goes forth. His manner among them, the kind of man he proved to be among them. His behavior among them was never an obstacle to the gospel. But rather, when he was with them, they were drawn to him. That's a powerful component of the gospel mission. And that helps complement something else. Let's look at the second thing that they reported. They were reporting how the Thessalonians turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. What's the word that we use when someone turns? Repentance. Yes. It's about how they repented. The people around the Thessalonians reported how well Paul was received, and at the same time, they couldn't help but talk about how the Thessalonian believers repented. Those were the two things that stood out. How well Paul Paul was received, and how repentant the Thessalonians were. Do you see the connection The whole goal of being received was so that they would repent and turn to the Lord. Often, I think, we like to focus on the first part, right? I don't know about you, but I like to be liked. 
I like to be received, to be welcomed. We like that kind of report circulating about us, right? But the Macedonians and the others couldn't only think of that of this aspect of gospel ministry. They simultaneously thought of repentance. What does this turning to God from idols look like? What characterized their repentance? Look at verses 9 and 10. They tell us that they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. So they served God and they waited for Jesus' return. Point number five is that ministry labors for nothing less than repentance. We labor for transformation of life. We labor to see people understand what it means to be slaves of the Lord and to long for Jesus' return. See, if we're only likable in ministry, but people don't actually change, that should burden our hearts. That should be very unsatisfying to us. We must not be satisfied with just being received, being welcomed into people's lives. We must persevere for the hope of repentance, for transformation of lives in our friendships, in our families, in our parenting, in our workforce, with our neighbors, to our parents. We must always aim for repentance. And remember that this is always being done gently, like a nursing mother. Tenderly, we can't be harsh or abrasive. Now I want you to turn to 2 Timothy 2. And uh, we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 25 and 26, where we'll see Paul emphasize this again. Okay, about halfway through verse 25, we read, If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they, and they may come to their senses. Okay, that's what we want, right? And escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. We want to see people repent, right? What would God say he wants to display in the process of drawing someone to repentance? Okay, what comes to your mind first? What would we think? I don't know about you, but I would think, and rightly so, the gospel, right? We've got to have the right message, and that is absolutely true. But Paul is emphasizing again here something different. What does he lay out before repentance? Look at verse 24. He says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance. You see that? God invests in his servants 
qualities that reflect the very same character he has in bringing us to repentance. And it is our responsibility and our privilege by God's grace to be that kind of messenger, to be that kind of slave of Christ in gospel ministry where we ourselves are not an obstacle to repentance. So again, we cannot be concerned merely with content. Obviously, we are concerned with content, but we can't stop there. We want to go beyond that. We need to be thinking about the kind of women we want to prove to be among people. We need to be this kind of messenger, the messenger that we've seen in 1 Thessalonians. That is who God loves to use in bringing people to repentance. This is a great compliment to what Paul teaches in so many other places in regard to right content. We want the right gospel content, right? We want the right message. We're giving you gospel resources this morning because we want you to have the right gospel. If we give another message, repentance won't come. But this is drawing our attention to the fact that we've got to be a certain kind of woman in that gospel message delivery. We need to be gentle, able to teach, We need to be patient when wronged. We can't be quarrelsome. See, the focus in ministry, in our homes, in every relationship, is not only on what we say, although we know that's important, but every bit as much on the kind of women that we must be. And if we're going to be that kind of woman, we come back to one thing. And what do you suppose that is? Discipline number one, shepherding our hearts. Right, we come back to that. We shepherd our hearts. We must. We shepherd our hearts because we are concerned to step into the lives of our families and our roommates We're concerned that our homes are places where the gospel is what shapes our care and our input into others' lives. When we step into people's lives, we want the right message and we're concerned to be the right kind of woman. This is what we're aiming for as we gather together for Wellspring. And once Wellspring is over and we move on, we never graduate from this. We never move on from shepherding our hearts. And we never stop ministering in God's way, this way, the way that we've seen this morning with the gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are just so thankful for your word. Father, thank you for your spirit that brings it to light for us. Thank you for the things that you teach us. 
Father, we are thankful that in your kindness you have shown us the gospel. You've called us to yourself. And we acknowledge now that we are your slaves, that you desire to use us in gospel ministry. And Father, we desire to be effective in that ministry. And so I thank you that you have made it so clear in your word that when we minister to one another, it always, always must be centered on the gospel, whether with unbelievers or with believers. Father, I pray that that will always be our message as we minister to one another. But Father, thank you that you also show us that you want us to be the right kind of woman. Our character matters in how you use us, how we display your gospel message. And so, Father, I, I pray first in my own life and then in the lives of the women here today that you will bring conviction to us in the areas in our lives where we need to repent and confess any sin that would make us imitatable women, women who could be examples to others. Father, I know you will be faithful to do that as we continue to seek you to reveal those areas of sin to us. And then, Father, we want to thank you that once that sin is revealed to us, that we can run to your cross. We can remember that you died for that sin. That we are forgiven and that you have provided for us a way to be obedient. Father, what a gift you have given to us. I pray that you would use us in the lives of others. Father, that we would think beyond our own ministry, that as we minister to others, that we would be thinking about the next generation. As there are young moms who are here today, I pray that they would be encouraged as they minister to their children with the gospel. Father, that you would raise up the next generation to be even more fruitful than we are. Father, we pray all of this for your glory and in Jesus' precious name. Amen.